Last week we talked about the tabernacle and God's instruction for its design. We talked about how it was patterned after a heavenly reality, but it was a shadow of things yet to come. There were lots of details with lots of symbolic meaning, and to be honest with you, we just scratched the surface of what's there. But the very most important detail is the one we can't afford to miss, and that is how everything in the tabernacle was intended to point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate answer for how sinful man lives eternally in the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle is all about. Now, as those tabernacle details were given to Moses, we need to remember that he was up on the mountain meeting with God. And I'm sure he was constantly amazed by what he was seeing and hearing from the Lord. But meanwhile, the Israelites are still down on the base of the mountain wondering where he is. <laughs> He's been gone a while. In fact, 40 days. And they're beginning to wonder if he's ever coming back. In fact, they start to, to murmur and, and complain. For all they know, Moses is done. Maybe God's judgment finally got to him. Maybe God is frustrated and has decided to, to move on. The Israelites are restless. So they start to doubt God's presence and his concern for their life. And so before we get too critical about what happens with the Israelites next, you and I need to understand the importance of understanding how dangerous it is to doubt the presence of God. And let's be honest with each other and admit that we've all been there, right? We've all been there. We've all had those moments where we're not sure if he's forgotten us or not. Times when he feels distant, maybe even disconnected from our life. And so we've gone our own way. As if God is no longer concerned. If he doesn't seem interested, then maybe I just need to, to move on and do my own thing. We customize our faith. Make God out to be who we want him to be. Just in order to ease our conscience. And it may seem like a stretch, but what we will look, like, look at in the uh, passage that we will see this morning is just as much a temptation for us as it was for the Israelites. And the reason I am so confident that that's true is because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Just listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he says this. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. You see, Paul doesn't write those words if he's not convinced through the power of the Holy Spirit that there's a temptation for you and I. That there's a danger for us. And in fact, the words that he quotes out of the Old Testament are taken directly out of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And so what we see happening with the Israelites is just as much a threat to our own understanding of who God is as it was for them. 
it's a very dangerous thing to doubt the presence of God in the midst of our confusion and concern. So let's ask the Lord to lead us and guide us through his word. Father, I'm grateful that you do not leave us to ourselves. That would be a disaster. But instead, you have guided us. You know our hearts better than we know our own heart. And because of that, you want to give us the instruction. Let us see the examples of of things that have happened before us to teach us in the way that we should go. To learn and be directed by the work of your spirit through the power of your word. And so we pray earnestly as your people in this place this morning that you would have your way in our heart. That we would be humble. That we would see what you see, hear what you want us to hear. And be led by your spirit according to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 32. Keep in mind the people are restless. They're murmuring. They're complaining. They're wondering if maybe Moses has uh, abandoned them. And for that matter, maybe God as well. And so look at what happens next in chapter 32 verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The, Moses, the, the people gathered around Aaron as their appointed leader because when Moses is gone, Aaron is in charge. For all they know, he's not coming back. He's been gone for a long day. 40 days is a long time, and they're wondering what in the world's going on and assuming that he's probably not coming back. So they lobby their leader to carry out their personal agenda. But the truth of the matter is this. They really don't trust what God is doing. So they take matters into their own hands. That's the core of the issue. Don't miss that. They really don't trust what God is doing, so they take matters into their own hands. They fashion a deity according to their own design. They customize their faith based on their own desires. But I want you to look at the justification for their compromise. Look in verse 2. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which, you, uh, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which they had in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took them from their hand and fashioned it with a a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Then the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings. And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. And rose up to play. Verse 6 is the exact passage that Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. That's exactly what's happening here. The idol was fashioned from the gold jewelry that they had received from the Egyptians when they left town. Remember, these are not articles that are common among slaves. 
They don't have gold and silver and those kinds of things. This is what was given to them by the Egyptians when they were leaving Egypt. Now keep in mind, Moses hasn't told them anything about the tabernacle yet. He's been meeting with God on the mountain. They don't know anything about the invitation that God is going to give to them to participate in the building of this tabernacle by offering these gifts to him. Instead, because of their lack of trust, they've gone on ahead of God and used those very same articles not to build a tabernacle, but to build an idol. But that's what we do when we don't trust what God is doing. We take his gifts and we use them for things we want. We create idols based on our own desires. The language here is actually fairly graphic. In the original Hebrew, the word that we see play or revelry has sexual overtones. The idea here is their idolatry has led them into immorality, which it very often does. Because the bottom line is they are indulging in selfish desires. Their heart is unchecked by the acknowledgement of God's presence among them. Now, did you see what their compromise was? Look again in verse 4. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They created a deity by their own design and called it God. They are using God's name to endorse their actions as if he approves. But just because you use God's name does not mean that it has God's blessing. Make no mistake. They are doing what is popular. They are not doing what is right. They are unwilling to wait on the Lord and they decided to do their own thing. And it should be no surprise that their worship became everything they wanted it to be. There's a powerful statement about this scene that R.C. Sproul makes. I want you to listen carefully because it really does capture what is happening here. He says this, The cow they created gave no law, demanded no obedience, had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, impotent. This was a religion designed by men and ultimately useless for men. But that's what happens when we don't trust what God is doing and we decide to do our own thing. And we are just as tempted to go in that direction as they were. And I look at verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Okay, just because God isn't visible doesn't mean he's not present. 
Because clearly he knew everything that was happening down on the base of the mountain. And did you notice how he referred to the Israelites? Look again in verse 7. He tells Moses, your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt. Now, what we need to understand here is that God is not trying to shift the blame to Moses. He is not disowning the Israelites. He's not the one who broke the covenant promise. They did. And so his language reflects their decision to walk away from him. You cannot expect God's blessing if you are unwilling to surrender to his sovereign rule in your life. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and will make of you a great nation. Some versions in verse 9, my version says obstinate. Yours may say stiff-necked. And the reason that is the case is because that's a more literal translation. The Hebrew word is intending to give us a word picture. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Somebody who stiff-necked, right? It's a position of pride. It's your head's high. Your, your, your neck is stiff. Your, your chest is poked out. It's intending to paint the picture of someone who makes life work on their terms and then calls it worship because they're unwilling to bow before a holy God. That kind of attitude demands God's judgment. And so God threatens his wrath. He literally threatens to wipe them all out and start all over with Moses. Now, that's absolutely what they deserve for what they've done. But my question is, is that really what God intended? And the reason I wonder if that's the case is because why would he tell Moses to go down immediately to his people if he was planning to destroy them? You see, I believe God tells Moses, leave me alone so I can give your people what they deserve where that threat is actually an invitation for him to intervene. As parents, we know what this looks like. So if I'm telling Grant day after day, hey, bud, you got to pick up those Legos all over your floor. I can hardly get through your room. Hey, bud, you got to pick up those Legos. They're all over the floor. you got to pick up your room. If it doesn't happen, one day I might say, you know what, Grant, I'll tell you what. Don't worry about those Legos. I'm going to vacuum this afternoon, and when I get into your room, I'll take care of those Legos for you. See, my threat of vacuuming the Legos is actually an invitation for him to do something about it because it's imminent. And I believe the very same thing is happening here. The threat of judgment is an invitation for Moses to intervene on behalf of his people. And it's also a test. Because did you notice what God is offering him? He says, I'm going to give you the chance to essentially be the man. I will destroy them all and then create a people of yours. I'll make you the one. And so instead, from this day forward, instead of it being the Israelites, we'll call them the Mosesites. What do you think about that, Moses? You see, in order to save Israel, Moses has to turn down the chance to make a name for himself. That's the test. He has to choose God's glory over his own glory. He has to reject his own good for the sake of his people. How ironic that the man that the Israelites have disowned has now become their only hope. Think about that. 
Because it's not only ironic, it's prophetic. Because there would be one like Moses who was ultimately disowned by the very ones he came to save. That's what's happening here. Look at verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord. He took that invitation, entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt? Notice he changed the pronoun. It's not my people. These are your people. With great power and with a mighty hand, you delivered them. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. You gave them a promise and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. See, God gave Moses the opportunity to intervene, and Moses took it. And did you notice that he never minimized Israel's sin? He didn't make excuses for them. He didn't try to justify their behavior. You see, because he knew the people were guilty. And God had every right to condemn them. For their apostasy. Moses is not interceding for the innocent. He's pleading for mercy upon the guilty. His appeal is based on God's character, not Israel's conduct. Moses pleads with God for his namesake. After all, he says, look, what would it be like for you to deliver your people only to then destroy them in the wilderness? And so he turns to God and he says, for the sake of your promise and for the good of your people, please have mercy on Israel. Now look at verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. Now, I know what it says. But I do not believe that Moses or God literally changed his mind. I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. The first one is explicit. It's 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. Listen to what he writes. Also, the God of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. You see, I understand what is happening here, much like I understand the questions that God asks throughout the Bible. And not once is God ever asking a question in order to obtain information that he doesn't already have. Instead, God asks us questions so that we learn something we need to know. Let me give you an example. In the Garden of Eden, when God walks into the garden after they have taken the apple, you'll remember he calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? As if he doesn't know where he is. Adam comes out and he says, oh, there you are. Wow, look at that. Did something happen? As if he didn't know. You see, what God was doing is he was putting Adam in a place where he had to verbalize for himself what he had done in the eyes of God. He was not asking questions to gain information for his own. He was asking questions for Adam to understand what he needed to know. And I believe the very same thing is happening here. 
God threatened his judgment as an invitation for Moses to intervene. He wanted Moses to verbalize what God already knew to be true. That his actions are not motivated by what we deserve. But his actions are motivated by what he promises. He wanted Moses to understand deeply what he already knew to be true. Now look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and then the other. The tablets were God's work. And the writing of God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said, Moses, it's the sound of war in the camp. Typical military person. But he said, oh, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. This is not good. This is not good. Because what Moses and Joshua hear is is the people singing in the delight of their debauchery. Their worship has turned into a party. And they're literally having way too much fun. They were reveling in what God had condemned. And Moses is furious. Look at verse 19. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire, ground it into powder, scouted it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. See, the breaking of the tablets, were not, it's not just a, a fit of rage. See, Moses is symbolizing what he saw. He broke the commandments because that's exactly what was happening when he looked upon the people. He treated them like trash because that's exactly what they were being portrayed as among his people. Moses walked in the camp, took the golden calf, melted it down, ground it into powder, threw it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it so that they could taste the bitterness of their sin, literally. See, he didn't repurpose the idol. Did you hear what I said? He did not repurpose the idol. He did not hide it. He destroyed it. And we need to understand the same thing in our life. We don't hide idols in our closet. We don't repurpose them. We destroy them for the name of Christ. And to further enforce his point, he put that powder in the water and made them drink so that they would taste the bitterness of their sin. And then he turns to Moses, the one he'd put in charge, right, in his absence. Look at what he says in verse 21. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You you know the people yourself, that they're prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever is gold, let him tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
it really would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. It reminds me of Adam's response. Remember in that same scene in the garden when he confronted Adam about what, what happened here? And he said, the woman you gave me, she's the one to blame. Aaron's doing the very same thing. He's minimizing the issue. He's shifting the blame. He's pointing the finger and claiming to be innocent in it all. <laughs> Look again in verse 22. He basically says, now hold on, little brother. Control your temper. This is not as bad as you think. He's minimizing the issue. He goes on and says, after all, you know how these people are prone to evil. Come on, Moses, you've dealt with them before. He's shifting the blame. He goes on and says, by the way, Moses, this was all their idea in the first place, pointing the finger. In fact, I don't even know what happened. I put in gold in the fire and out pops this calf, claiming to be innocent. Today, we might call that political spin. It's also known as a strategy to avoid confession. But here's the problem. Salvation is for sinners. Salvation is for sinners. And until you're willing to admit your sin, you cannot be saved. Salvation is for sinners. Idolatry is bad enough. Denying it, it's even worse. But look at how he continues in verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is for the Lord? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to the gate in the camp and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Unrepentant rebellion makes a mockery of God. So Moses gives them a choice. He's actually extending grace, and he's basically saying, if you are willing to stand for the Lord, then literally walk away from that sin and come stand with me. And unfortunately, the only people who came were his own family. And so he gave them instructions to go and kill the leaders of the rebellion. About 3,000 men, which is about one half of 1% of the total population of the Israelites, and I guarantee you, Moses knew that every single person there was guilty. And truth be known, they all deserve to die. Moses knew that. Here's why I believe that's the case. Look at verse 29. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man, every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. To all the people, Moses said, you yourselves have committed a great sin. And now, I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Moses knew every single person was guilty. And he also knew, if nothing else, from the Passover alone, that the only way that, that guilt is admonished or, or is taken is through the blood of an innocent. Isn't that what Passover taught them? 
An, an innocent lamb has to be sacrificed for the life of the guilty. And Moses knows that there are only two people who weren't involved in what just happened. Him and Joshua. And so he says, let me go speak to God to make an atonement for you, the people. The one who is innocent pleads for the life of the guilty. Now look at verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please, blot me out of your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they had done with the calf which Aaron had made. This is an amazing scene if you really think about what just happened. Moses knows that all the people are guilty. He's already pleaded for God's mercy. But when he sees what he saw with his very own eyes, he knew how desperately wicked they were. And when he invites them into his, God's grace and sees their unwillingness to step forward and leave their sin, he knows that their heart is unrepentant. So the only option he has is to go and plead to, for the opportunity to make an atonement. A, a pleading of an innocent man for the obvious guilt. And I don't underestimate the significance of what he's doing here. He tells God, blot my name out of the book of life for their sake. This is unfathomable to me. It reminds me of what Paul says in the New Testament. When he says, take my life out of the book, take my name out of the book of the life. In other words, condemn me for the sake of Israel that they might be saved. It's remarkable to consider what he's requesting. But what was God's answer? No. Why? Why did he say no? Because Moses was just as guilty. Maybe not that day, but he had blood on his hands. He murdered a man. And so it is not possible for the sacrifice of a guilty to take away the sins of the guilty. Only a perfect sacrifice could remove the sins of an imperfect people. He who knew no sin must become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Timothy makes it clear. He says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ alone because there is no atonement for the guilty unless the sacrifice being made is without sin. Otherwise, we would all bear the punishment that our sin deserves because we're all guilty. I think this is a really important message. 
for what is happening within so-called Christianity today. Because like the Israelites, I believe those who name the name of Christ are increasingly customizing their faith and carving out the things they don't want, the things they don't like. And when we do that, we create a new deity by our own design, and we call it God. We use the attribute of love and, and as, a, as, as an ability to do whatever we want, because it'll cover us, right? But instead of a God who shapes us, we shape Him, ignoring His demand for obedience, His justice, His wrath for sin. And here's what breaks my heart. When we take that away, it belittles the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Because if sin is not that big of a deal, then the cross is not all that important. And the more enlightened we become about what God really said, the farther we move away from the truth. Here's the reality that we must come to grips with in order to preserve the integrity of our faith. The Bible calls us to deny ourselves to embrace the cross, and to follow Christ. And yet there is a growing segment of Christianity who is saying just the opposite. Embrace yourself, because Jesus wants to bless who you are. Do you see it? Let me be clear. God does not want to save us so that we can become a better version of our old self. Let me say that again. God does not intend to save us so that we can become a better version of our old self. The language in the Bible is explicit. It says, I am crucified with Christ. It says, I am a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It says, he who wants to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I must die to myself so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Bible is specific. And let me tell you guys, what I just said is good news. So Christians, we don't need to mourn the reality. We need to celebrate the gift. Because dying to self is the only way we become everything that God created us to be. In righteousness, in goodness, and in truth. We desperately need to be rescued from our sin-cursed self. And that can only happen when my stiff neck humbly bows to the sovereignty of God in my life. The integrity of our faith depends on our willingness to trust God more than we trust ourselves. The integrity of our faith depends on our willingness to trust God more than we trust ourselves. See, the Israelites got in trouble when they got impatient, when they were unwilling to wait. And so I think the lesson we can take to heart on this is maybe one of the greatest tests of the integrity of our faith is are you willing to wait on God? Are you willing to wait? 
Do you trust that he's at work even when you may not see his hand? You see, we have to be intentional about what we believe or otherwise we will be carried away by the current of our culture. Using God's gifts for selfish gain, we are just as much tempted as the Israelites were in the wilderness. If there's ever a time for God's people to step out of the mainstream and into his presence, now is the time. So let me urge you with all that is within me, be fervent, be diligent, be intentional about seeking the Lord in prayer, about confessing your sins, about repenting and turning and walking away so that you can walk faithfully in obedience, in fellowship with God, and in unity with his people. That's what we're called to. We can no longer depend on manna from yesterday. And here's what I mean by that. You remember in the desert when God gave them manna, he gave them just what they needed for that day. And what happened when they stored it off up for the next day? It spoiled, right? He was teaching them to trust him for his daily provision. It was more than bread. It was spiritual nourishment. Okay, now fast forward to the New Testament. Uh, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And we know all about that prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me make sure you understand. He's not just talking about physical bread. In fact, more importantly, he's talking about spiritual nourishment. He's treating us just like he was trying to teach the Israelites. Don't depend on yesterday's manna. You need daily bread. I think so often we show up faithfully on a day like today, and that's great. But then we expect it to last until next Sunday. And we don't ever sit down and spend time praying. We don't ever sit send down and spend time in God's Word. And, and I was convicted of that this week. Because yesterday, <laughs> I went <coughs> and I listened to a sermon. I always listen to sermons that I wish I could teach as well as those guys could. And one of the things that they said is, Hey, pastor, don't ever walk into the pulpit unless you've been faithful to be fervent in your prayer. To know that you have nothing to say that can change the heart of another human being apart from the work of the Spirit. So get on your knees and pray for that to happen. And I haven't done that as well as I should. I'm diligent to study and to prepare. But I haven't been faithful to pray. And that's going to change. And so this weekend, I really did try to be committed to making sure that my heart was right when I stood up here and looked at people that I truly love and to recognize that I have nothing to offer you apart from the work of the Spirit in your heart. And I desperately long for us to be a people who don't depend on tomorrow's manna but who tomorrow, when they wake up, are just as fervent about seeking the Lord as you were today. Just as faithful about looking at His Word and considering what it says as you were today. 
just as committed about singing songs of praise because you mean it, just like you were today. We celebrate communion once a month, but it's a reminder of what we should be doing every single day. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't depend on tomorrow's manna. And in my opinion, it may be the reason why our world is where we're at today. Because as Christians, we've been lazy. We haven't been faithful. And I'm chief among them. And so let's maybe commit ourselves this morning for that to look different. That we will take to heart the very explicit words of Scripture that we see being portrayed for us, for our benefit, as it explicitly told us, so that we cannot walk out blinded by the world around us, but live with eyes wide open, acknowledging the presence of God and committed to follow Him faithfully. So Melanie Park, is that what you want to do? Is that what you want to do? Then if it is, then let's stand and pray together. Father, there are certain passages and certain times that we read your word that it should bring us to our knees. I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but for today, that, that was me. So forgive me for having a stiff neck or holding my head in pride for even looking at the lostness around me and saying in my heart, they're going to get what they deserve instead of pleading for your mercy upon them and seeking to be faithful to show them and to tell them about what I have been graciously given and no credit of my own. Father, help us to be a people who don't depend on tomorrow's manna, but seek a fresh and renewed spirit committed to following you every single day. And maybe then, maybe then they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. For you have gone before us, preparing good works ahead of time so that we might walk in them. And as long as we're following you, that's your promise that you will fulfill. May we be your people who live that out. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Have a great day.